0: You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash EU West Europe. Um, I used to help organize this con- this teacher workshop at the EU Center when I was at UW. So it was really fun to be back on the <laughs> delivering side. So I hope I remember enough about your interests and how what you're interested in learning. Um, and um, I will try not to speak too long. I'm going to put on here my... My timer um, to make sure we have lots of time for questions, and I was glad that I actually zoomed in a little early to to Nico's talk because I think um, there are a lot of uh, connections um, that that we can make between what Nico talked about and what I will talk about um, uh, in particular. So um, I took this workshop as kind of an opportunity to organize my thoughts, and I have to say this is pretty much what this is. This is not a research project. Um, Um, in and of itself. It just basically, I took that as kind of organizing what I was thinking this summer about the coronavirus and what happened in Europe and the United States. Um, And in my particular case, um, I'm the second German here on the the lineup, and then we have another fluent German speaker with with Joyce joining later. Um, I lived most of my life in Germany, so um, um, until my early 20s, and then I started living in the United States. So I was naturally interested in learning more about Uh, What obviously happened to my family in Germany during this pandemic, um, and then kind of comparing it all the time. So what happens here. And it's so different what happened in Montana uh, than what happened in Arizona, or even in Washington. Um, So um, we, I hope we can have kind of a conversation like that later um, at the discussion level as well. So I noticed a couple of things. Um, comparing our situations constantly. For one, um, the federal response, uh, right? I mean, it was obvious for everybody. um, It was fairly quickly. In in Germany, we tested, we started testing super early. uh, In January even, um, and the tests were widespread, and then pretty promptly Germany started to restrict uh, movement. And here, it seemed like it took painfully long and uh, but eventually we caught up and but very regionally very different. And that, what we talked about Nico mentioned with the, had a lot to do with the federal system of both countries and we can talk about that a little later. Um, but also the Germans just expected a stronger role. I think we were all much more like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, the German government will, sta- will, will take a stand, not only because I think Merkel is so popular and um, listens to science, but I also um, think uh, people were just okay with being stopped on the streets and asked their IDs um, to have their last names checked if they actually walked with the correct person um, or get even fined for it. Um, uh, My sister was stopped just because she talked to a a neighbor on the street. Um, And there was not much outrage about it, at least not in in the average population that that I was exposed to. I mean, of course, we have the protests, but I can just imagine what would have happened here in Montana if that would have been mm-hmm. even close to being the case. Um, so I think that was, that was a stark contrast. Um, um and, and this, you know, this minimal intervention was really, was what, it, what it was uh, expected here, um, and, and accepted even that and not really to a harder extent. So, um, What I want to talk about today though, is kind of, I want to take the institutionalist stance, because that's where I'm coming from as a political scientist, Uh, because I really want to look at how these roles and expectations of government um, in Europe and the US kind of influenced our our personal responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think um, it's worth it to look at the welfare regimes, to look at what we're actually used to and accustomed to in um, interaction with our governments, but often in terms of benefits and how we were prepared when we actually went into this pandemic. Um, I think that kind of created a different framework of expectations. and um, also informed how, how, how we reacted to the pandemic overall. So um, let me start in talking about um, um, welfare regimes, and then I will uh, take three countries um, that we actually already talked about and look into a little bit more in detail. Uh, Germany, naturally, <laughs> because that's uh, closest to me, um, but also the United States and Sweden. So we'll talk a lot more about Sweden, in particular case, and um uh, hopefully discuss that a little bit later um, as well. Um, and after um, that, I will look at how um, these three countries, and us assuming to be living there, um, were affected by, uh, by the pandemic and what that actually did to the trust of government and how people feel overall to um, about the pandemic responses. Great. So um, let me set the scene here uh, with welfare state regimes. And I know we have covered that before I think in other teacher workshops. I don't know how many of you come back um, so that might be old news to you um, but I wanted to set the scene this way. Um, all modern democracies that we know in the world have some sort of welfare regime uh, which means it's not only the government in of itself but also social norms that inf- influences how, main, how we interact with the state in terms of the, our subsidies, how we pay taxes, how we have benefits, and that is vastly different um, depending how much you receive or um, expect from your educational system, your healthcare system, your social services and benefits. And one way of dealing with these vast differences um, in our sociological or also political science world is we um, created groups of them um, that we call the three welfare state regimes, and that happened in the 1990s. Um, and as you can see here on the small map, I hope you, you were able to see that on your screen. Um, uh, it's One is a Nordic system, also called the social democratic system where we have mostly c- Scandinavian countries in Europe. Um, and that's where my c- case that I'm looking at Sweden falls into. Um, then we have the Christian conservative model that's in Central and Southern Europe uh, mainly. Um, and, uh, and that's where Germany falls into. Um, and I will talk about what these models kind of make you know what makes them special and why they're called that way in a second um liberal democratic system uh, the liberal welfare regime how we will call it um has surprisingly also some countries in europe it's the uk and switzerland but also the us so you can see a wide variety of um Um, of of even countries that belong to these different regime groups, so to speak. And each regime group has a different way of of distributing and taking care of their population. Um, So the social democratic, the Scandinavian model is really a preemptive social uh, model. Um, There is a a fairly high amount um, of benefits that gets evenly distributed across society. It doesn't matter what life situation you are in. It doesn't matter if you have kids or if you have Um, if you're unemployed or employed, it doesn't really matter how much money you make, you're getting a certain amount of social benefits um, um, your entire life. So you're accustomed to to having a fairly close relationship to your your government, um, also in terms of paying higher taxes, uh, but also in terms of what you're receiving, what you're expecting to receive. Um, The conservative welfare regime which Germany falls into um, is very much based on a traditional family model. So um, you get um, uh, you have a fairly close relationship to your, to your uh, government if you have a family and you have, and we will talk about the different benefits in a second, um, because you get more, more benefits when you're in a family, when you have a traditional family model, a mother, a father married with two children, for example. Um, not so much if you choose not to have children or you don't have children or you're not married. Um, that looks a little different to you. And any other benefits really only come in once this traditional family model doesn't help anymore. It's not, it doesn't really help you in a situation anymore where you really have to get benefits from the, from the state to survive. Um, for our liberal model, that's very different. That's really much centered on, um, generally speaking, and there's a wide variety um, on, you really only get the support when you are in need. Um, And very much um, uh, having a job is the main way for you to keep most of your benefits. And once you're losing the job, then the government um, jumps in. Okay. Um, One big um, um, uh, way of looking, you know, I'm just like putting myself now into living in these countries. I've never lived in Sweden, uh, but I did live in Germany and and the United States. um, And I am assuming... I'm an average family in in each of these countries. Uh, Again, Sweden being the social democratic um, uh, welfare regime, Germany being the conservative, the U.S. being the liberal. And I have an income that's probably for most of you who who I'm assuming know already a little bit about these countries, Um, not very surprising. You have a lower household income, and that's um, the net adjusted one, disposable income. So basically, what you can spend um, um, after you have paid your taxes and your social contributions and received uh, your, your benefits. So, this is the money that you can spend um, in, in Sweden. And it's quite significantly lower than what you have in Germany. Um, I would have two children in Sweden. That's great. That fits. I do have two in the US. I would have 3.2. I'm happy with my two. I don't need three. But um, um, but the education would be free in Sweden and Germany as well. And we know in the, US, the United States would only be primary and secondary, secondary um, education. So, um, however, and um, that's the biggest But usually when we talk about how many benefits we get and how many we are not getting is that we have a pretty high tax rate. Right. So especially if we talk about Sweden. Um, So uh, the amount of money, for example, here in Sweden, the average income uh, before taxes would be $64,000. So it's roughly you would say, whoa, it's 50% of my income, which is pretty true. for uh, Sweden. But this kind of shows you the effect of tax rates in the different countries. Let's look at Sweden. It's right here in the middle. Yeah, it's a pretty high, high tax rate. But um, actually, if we look at this specifically, you know, assuming I'm making average, um, average income, um, I'm not even that sure actually to have to pay that much because the high, we have a highest top marginal tax rate in Sweden. So 14% of wealthiest public pay Uh, 51 to 65% of taxes. So if you make less than $53,000 a year, you actually don't pay any uh, income taxes and there's no property tax, which obviously also makes a big difference. Although the rate of property owned um, or owned property is also lower in Sweden. Anyway, so we do have to pay for having the social benefits um, that um, comes with a social democratic system or um, a conservative system. But how does it actually look? And this is not an extensive list. I just try to kind of focus on um, on how my life would look like pre-pandemic and what kind of benefits that I would get for my, my, my welfare state would actually make a difference in me, how I would go through this pandemic. So uh, with the children I would have in Sweden, I would get, doesn't matter if my income, doesn't matter um, in what situation I am, um, up to $200 a month per child for until, I think in Sweden it's 18 years or 20 years, I think. And in Germany, it's a little bit more, makes sense with the you know more conservative system, kind of the incentive of actually having children then 265 euros until uh, they're 24 or 25 where they finish their first kind of round of education after graduating high school. Um, in terms of medical care, which for me makes obviously big difference right now, I wouldn't have to pay um, anything for my children getting sick um, until they're 20 or 18, um, and, unless they have a different, they have a job and they have to go somewhere else. But then they're not part of my family anymore. Um, I wouldn't pay per person anyway, not more than $112 per, uh, dollars per year in terms of doctor's visits. Um, $240 as a yearly deductible for my medicines. Um, also, um, my choice of medicines might be limited. I mean, there are a lot of variations here again. Um, and I would have to pay between $500 and $800 um, monthly for um, two adults in terms of premiums. Um, if I'm getting unemployed and this pandemic kind of has what Nico already talked about, a certain new instrument of how governments deal in Europe with being unemployed. But let's say the standard, I'm unemployed Laid off from my job. Um, I have I have a, in, in, in Sweden, a very interesting combination because. 70% of employees are uh, um, member of a union they um, have um, one set of payments that come directly from um, the government um, and then another kind of insurance plan that's a union plan um, that would pay you another 80 percent of your salary for 200 days so you're pretty much covered for 500 days as an idea um, how you would how much you would get paid but um, it's um, on top of that paid sick leave even if you're unemployed um, Um, or let's say when you're, let's not, I'm not unemployed. When you're employed, you have the paid sick leave also when your kids are sick, which makes a big difference for me. If my kids get sick and I have to stay home um, during this pandemic. Um, In Germany, uh, it's a similar system, although much more complicated. I really broke it down here. Um, and, um, it also was in terms of healthcare, um, up to 18 years, um, I, I wouldn't have to pay for healthcare. If I make uh, less than $70,000 a year, um, I'm automatically publicly insured, um, which means I usually have to pay 10% of the pres- uh, prescription drug costs, um, $11 um, per day, a hospital co-pay. Again, that was before the pandemic, there were some new measures put in. Um, uh, during the pandemic, but that's kind of what I got used to. Obviously, that changed throughout the years as well. Um, But other medical expenses cannot be more than 2% of my yearly income. Um, The uh, monthly premium I would have to pay is between $500 and $900. That's for two adults, that kind of also varies, but in like that public system, that's usually what it is. Of course, it's very starkly different um, to what we experience in the United States, and but it also fits to our um, liberal um, healthcare, uh, not only healthcare, but our liberal welfare regime. Um, and it's very different to U.S. states. And I have to say, I'm not an expert in this when it comes to United States. I'm sure I lost, I forgot some of these. I kind of tried to scramble it together um, with what we have in Montana anyway um so um you would have uh, when you make less than $32,000 that's when you actually then have the benefits of medicaid or a chip program for kids um maybe you're lucky when you're employed that you have that your um, that your um health care plan includes offer um routine child visits um but we already are all accustomed to the high prices of healthcare in this country so uh we have an average of 2,788 yearly deductible for family, I have to say that's for family, uh, because I'm counting children here with us because we have to pay for them, and an average of 1,168 monthly premiums against two adults and three kids would be then the, the average um, that I would calculate that for. Um, also in terms of unemployment, it's not, um, um, that's when we would expect the liberal welfare regime to be more active because that's when would they would actually come in. And um, I kind of compared Montana and Washington here because I thought that might be interesting. Um, although we do have in Montana, 28 weeks of unemployment, um, roughly between 151 and $500 per week in Washington, slightly more, but it's for 26 weeks. Just as a general comparison, how these different regimes actually play out in, um, in practice when we, um, uh, when, when we do our daily lives. So, um, in terms of our normal average income in the U S we don't have a lot of, Um, expectations towards benefits we uh, we probably of course we pay taxes but we don't have this for example a child allowance and i didn't even include prenatal care or maternal care or any of these other um, benefits that are uh, standard in the other two regimes that we don't have um, here Um, it doesn't have that same type of expectation um, um, here as well Um, and that obviously is all different we have Private employer, pri- prenatal care I mean there's so much complication in that. I'm really trying to simplify this which I'm probably butchering it partially too. And then the pandemic hits um, right so um, that's kind of the assumption um, or the daily living circumstances um, for probably you know decades that we all grew up in in different countries and then we have the pandemic. I hope this works. Um, And this is kind of a, you know, time overview of the development of cases at the beginning, just China, and then it really starts getting Europe involved. Um, And then obviously United States jumps in. So March is the time when really um, lockdown measures were implemented, uh, but also fiscal stimulus was debated. Um, And that was very different from country to country. Um, um, And we will look in a second how these responses in terms of how restrictive those responses to the pandemic was in terms of social measures. Um, But we're also gonna look at um, the fiscal stimulus that those countries put in. And I think that's what I am gonna focus on a little more um, because I think it was really interesting for me to look into and dissect um, uh, for you where this fiscal stimulus has actually ended up being uh, paid at. But with the benefits we have, let's say just to summarize in Sweden and in Germany, I would expect that um, they would have to pay much less into those systems because they already have a pretty high standard of benefits and kind of system they can fall back into, especially in a situation of a pandemic. Um, while for the United States, I would expect that they would pay much more into their and they would have to the overall stimulus needs to be larger, much larger than Sweden and Germany. Um, and they also would have to just to balance out the minimum effects of, um, of this economic downturn. Um, that is unseen pretty much um, in our our lifetimes anyway, have to spend much more. Um, That's anyway the expectations I would go into. Um, So before I jump into the discussion of unemployment and GDP and fiscal stimulus, um, let's just look and kind of compare this government response stringency index, which kind of looks at school closures and workplace closures and travel bans and um, all these restrictions that were put into the, into all the, the, three countries here um, at the beginning of the pandemic. And of course, Sweden stands out, right? We have a social democratic welfare system with exceptional benefits in the world. Um, also one of the happiest citizens in, in the world as well. And they were the ones actually not shutting down at all. And there was a big debate. We're all aware of it, um, especially here in the United States, but everywhere pretty much. What the hell is going on with Sweden? And I won't be able to explain it all. But I think One um, aspect anyway that I think gets forgotten, and that's partially motivated me to do this talk as well, is that we do have such a robust welfare regime and such a high level of trust between Sweden that's institutionalized between the citizens and the government for a long time, because hey, you pay 50 or 60% of your income and you get so many benefits back. There's a strong relationship of giving and uh, receiving that is much higher than anywhere else in the world. So um, not that surprising maybe from that part um, as well. And a lot of other explanations for this. Um, Another one that I don't think gets mentioned enough is that there's simply not a um, emergency restriction um, in the constitution. Um, So in the Swedish constitution, you cannot, you don't have emergency measures that you can just put in as a government in order to actually have, uh, that would actually ban the movement of people in the country. So you would have to have um, a separate set of laws. And they did do that, but they just didn't do it as restrictive as they, as other countries did it, just because they were able to because of their constitutions. So, um, And we can talk more. If you're interested, I have a little bit more information about Sweden. We can talk about that a little bit. But I picked that up from the discussion you had with Nico, that you might be interested in that. But again, I would also make the case that um, that the population was just doing really well um, they just already had a pretty good trust that already went through a financial crisis a couple of years before they knew the government were able was able to really deal with it um, and take care of them um, and they were able to um to, to continue this trust um for until today is um I think Stina uh, mentioned uh, before, you know, uh, even talking to your Swedish friends, they were like, "Well, no, that's fine. And that's, that's what I heard as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about this. Anyway, United States and Germany went up, um, interestingly, almost at the same time that why it was that I kind of could compare the measure so well um, and what was happening here and what was happening in, in, in the United States. And just like, a, um A personal anecdote here, Um, I don't know if Nico talked about it, but there was this hugely popular podcast in Germany that was like this main um, epidemiologist from the Charité in Berlin. And he discussed every week, a couple times even, what was going on in Germany and explained everything COVID because he was a big researcher on MERS and he did a great job explaining me everything I needed to know. And it was very similar at the time what happened in Montana, it was crazy. Like almost everything that happened in Germany was happening in Montana at uh, maybe a couple days before or a couple days after um, in terms of um, lockdowns, for example. I think we had the lockdown in Montana pretty closely after Germany did it. And all those restrictive measures were very similar as well. Um, and we talked about Italy and Spain, how much more stringent that was. So when we look at the United States here, and that's my point, I mean, that's like basically saying you would take the stringency measures of all of Europe and would compare it. Of course you can't because it's so different from state to state in the United States as well. Um, but you can anyway, have, um, you can see that, you know, even if the United States here is higher, it very much depends in which state you're living in. You have an extremely different experience. I have extremely different experience in Montana than you had in Seattle. I'm hundred percent certain. Um, and, uh, similarly, actually in Germany, you have different states, uh, where those experiences are different. Um... Okay, so let's look, um, you know, what happened then, and especially with our obsession, um, for good or for bad, can also be debated, on um, the death toll, right? Because what we had with the lower stringency measures in Sweden, we also had higher death rates pretty early on, and this is only the early ones, uh, and not even the highest ones. And they're probably, you know, they're due to cases also in in uh, um, elderly homes and retirement homes. Um, but that is kind of what Sweden was really like, okay, well, we, have, we, have, we really need to do something. And, not, and also because the, the, the looser measures didn't help them or didn't prevent any economic downturn. It didn't prevent unemployment either. So that's what the idea was, oh, we have looser restrictions and that will help us in the long run to have, get better through this crisis because it's gonna be a long-term, Situation we have to deal with, and Sweden so was like, no, not really much. And once these, once these death tolls went in, and and you know, media picked up on us, and we all picked up on it, and we're much more sensitive to it. Um, that was really the time when the big stimulus packages were uh, negotiated. Um, and there was not, not only the death toll; we have um, you know an unprecedented economic downturn. Um, and this is um, on the left here, uh, coronavirus. Um, GDP contractions um, in the second quarter, and that's important because I had it in the United States, that people took the second quarter measures and then they just uh, projected it over the entire year. And obviously that looks super bad, but it's not really how this works. So you have to look at the different quarters and you have to see how things develop. Anyway, this is the worst quarter. We don't, you know, prob- maybe we have worse ones to come, but um, Sweden is not on here. So it's probably, it's, it's right between the United States and Germany here. Um, um, but we have a minus 9 point, uh, 9.5%, minus 10% for Germany. So GDP-wise, um, this is this is really a hard hit. Um, and um, subsequently, also for unemployment uh, numbers, um, especially in the United States. Not so much in Germany. And Nico talked about it, um, about the special worker scheme that, um, that Germany came up with during the financial crisis. And I will talk about that in a second as well. Um, so... Um, I don't think it's always interesting to compare, um, and that's the next next slide I have here, um, just really try to focus on the green arrows, <laughs> otherwise it gets maybe a little bit confusing. Um, so what I want to show you here is just the comparison how countries reacted in terms of stimulus packages in the uh, great financial crisis in 2009 compared to the 2020 stimulus package. And this is from April 17. So this is not very, um, it's not totally accurate, right? So if we have another, another uh, stimulus care package here in the United States, it will look different. Germany here is in the middle. Um, it's also not very accurate, but what I want to show you is just the, the, the magnitude of, of stimulus uh, response um, from governments during this pandemic compared to the financial crisis in 2009. There was much more need to actually put more money into the economies and put money in the healthcare systems than it was before. I mean, Japan stands out. I would, you know, after my, doing my research for this, I think like I just need to look into Japan now, what happened? And I don't know. Uh, I just know that, they rea- that overall they did very well, um, but they also put a lot of money. I mean, that's a lot of money, 20% of GDP. my gosh I mean to put that into a stimulus package anyway we focus on the United States on uh, Sweden who is actually not on here but uh, will be on here in a second and um and and Germany so main takeaway from this uh much more spending at least for those countries that are green that have been hit early by this pandemic and if we would now add the other ones I'm sure it would look similar if they have the money left in terms of Italy it's not so much so look at this and try and just let's focus just on the on this um, here on the left. For now, the global coronavirus stimulus package compared. Um, Well, I expected the United States has to pay, you know, spend much more. this is percentage of GDP. That's what I mean with spend much more. It's not necessarily the amount of dollars but really the percentage of GDP, what they were actually able to put in. 13%, again, let's forget Japan, which is crazy, but 13%. And then closely followed by Sweden, 12%. Well, that's not what I expected. I really wanted you know Sweden not to spend that much uh, uh, because they were thinking they were doing well uh, why did they have to um, uh, spend that much money and then Germany I mean 10% that's also not what I expected Germany much, must, must be much more frugal they cannot spend that much um, anyway but that's what it is so I was surprised and I was like okay well uh, that's interesting so let's look a little bit into uh, where this money actually got spent and I was like oh good okay that's actually what I expected a little more so um, Sweden, of, the, of these uh, 12% overall GDP spending on the, on the pandemic stimulus package, spent only 11% on social benefits, right? It's still going to be a lot of money, but it was mainly towards the short-term work scheme that um, everybody in Europe um, kind of um, copied from Germany in this crisis, uh, because Germany did... Um, 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 the same scheme. So basically, you don't lose your job. Nico kind of explained that a little bit. You don't lose your job in an economic downturn, Um, um, but you, you don't work. You only work 20%, but you still are employed, but your employer doesn't pay your salary. It's actually the state the government. Jumping in, the advantage of that is you never show up on an unemployment statistic. That's why Germany looks so great here looks you know, fantastic, and I'll show you in a second how that looks in other countries. Um, but it's also much cheaper for your system, especially if you have one set up, like I talked about um, the conservative welfare state or a welfare regime or the social welfare regime has a high interest of not having anybody go into the unemployment scheme because it is so expensive. Um, Germany also, no, Sweden, as uh, part of the short-term, uh, short, short-time work allowance system they set up, also has ext- more extensive sick leave, wanted to make sure people stay home. They have the money to stay home, they don't have to worry about it. They would get extra money for housing in, in case they have less salary, that they can still pay for it because housing is so expensive. And then they had a, high, a high-risk population allowance. Um, which since I don't, I don't speak Swedish, I I don't know exactly how much that was. Um, I would be interested maybe to know, um, and uh, to ask some Swedish friends that are maybe older if they got it and how much, but there was an allowance for at-risk population, basically a payment for staying home and being locked up, um, voluntarily. Um, Germany did also put 16%, so a little more, which is also what I, you know, if you think about that's probably what I would have expected, a little more than Germany, just because, a little more than Sweden, just because their system is not as generous. Um, They would also add that to their short term, a short short time work allowance scheme. They would add to the child allowance, which is also, you know, another sign of like a conservative welfare state, um, being a good conservative welfare state, putting more into child allowance and and, and supporting the, the family. The traditional family. And then they added to health insurance subsidies. Um, they made sure that their public health insurance wouldn't collapse um, in the um in the t- anticipation of higher h- higher hospitalization, which never came. Uh, so they have a high um actually they have a, a lot of money left now that they might need in their second wave right now. Um, but um, uh, generally um, the, those those were the areas at least for the social benefit part of the fiscal stimulus package. Where those countries put the money in, um, so where did all the money, other money go for those two countries before I moved to the United States? So all that other money went to um, um, mainly um, loan guarantees, but also direct payments for companies, um, um, also airline bailout, but not as much as in the United States stimulus package, and um, in. Um, uh, they just invested a lot. So both Sweden and Germany invested in a retraining of um, unemployed um, uh, citizens um, into green jobs. That was Sweden already did that during the financial crisis and they did it again now. It was very successful during the financial crisis to retrain and then have uh, employees available to move into new jobs because they're already anticipating that some of those jobs might not come back. Um, And uh, in terms of Germany, they took this as like, oh great, we wanted to spend anyway a lot of money on infrastructure and um, uh, our green mobility. So that's basically what they did. So instead of having to put it into their welfare systems, they actually put it into investment in their economies and towards mainly green mobility, green economy, so to speak, and and workers retraining. Although I have not seen that for Germany yet. That's a Swedish um, program, the retraining that doesn't know how many other countries in Europe took that over. Um, the United States, if we look at the stimulus of our care package, 27% roughly went to social benefits. And I do include here the direct payments, um, the Trump checks, and I um, also the other assistance to families and unemployment subsidies, the extra payments, uh, $600 um, per week. So 27%, so just roughly a third of that money went to um, uh, went to social benefits. So uh, pretty much what I would have expected. Um, but then much less money for investment. So if you look into the tr- in, into our stimulus packages, very, very little in terms of investment, there's almost none to uh, workers retraining or anything preparing beyond uh, the immediate impact of what it has right now on the economy. Um, so these are the, the, the biggest uh, differences. And I see I'm over already the time I wanted to speak. But I think it's important to at least talk a little bit about what happened to um, me or us living in Sweden, Germany and United States and what we think about our government. Um, But before I talk about that, let me just go back to this worker allowance because the biggest criticism that especially the United States has, uh, but also the economists here, uh, which they always don't like government interventions ever, um, is that the uh, um, short-term worker allowance creates zombie jobs. So basically those jobs that are lost now in the United States, let's say the United States has a true unemployment figure, um, and all these like little light blue dots would be the true unemployment figures in all these other countries that took over the short-term unemployment allowance. Um, and these zombie jobs um, are just a fiddle, artificially um, uh, kept alive, and that would disappear, and maybe should disappear. That's the economist's position um, in an economy. And that's a normal, the normal ways of the economy does work, and we need to get rid of those jobs to, you know, make the market do its job or let the market do its job and create jobs somewhere else. Um, that's interesting. We will have to see how that how that goes. I mean, um, again, for the credit financial crisis, this was not a problem. Um, there were no zombie jobs really, especially in Germany. Those those workers went right back to work, helped get the economy going. You don't have to retrain your workers. They're right there um, and can do their jobs. Um, We don't know how this is gonna work out. The longer this is taking, the longer, the more expensive it will be. Germany already wants to expand its percentages of money they have to put towards those social benefits quite significantly because of this scheme. So it's not clear yet. But I think it's an important piece to keep in mind is it's a great program, but it also has its, its negative side effects that, that you have to put in, keep in mind here. Okay. So if we, with everything I talked about, um, would live in Sweden um, and we know about the death rate, higher death rate at the beginning, uh, actually not so much right now anymore, but again, at the beginning in Sweden, um, low levels relatively low level of restrictions. I mean, um, high school and university also went online and, um, uh, but prime, preschool and primary school, um, middle school were all open. So what would we think about our government right now? And the best data I found, and I might, there might be other ones coming out that might look at that a little better. I'm not so worried about the economy. I think the economy, I mean, I'm worried about the economy for sure, but, um, uh, but I don't know which, which effect that really would affect my job at this point. The healthcare system, nah, no, it actually was fine. And if, if we look at hospitalization, they're not, not too high right now. I have still high trust of government. I think they did a great job overall. I, I trust them in what they do. Um, but I'm actually also a little worried about the health risk of this. I don't know if I want to get it since I probably know a bunch of people that got it around me. Um, but, you know, overall, um, at least the trust of government that is my main focus here would be still pretty high. And the thing is, you know, we will run and compare it and um, anything what I've seen is also, you know, trust of government in Sweden is generally really high and there's no difference between this pandemic before we have to see what happens after. In Germany, and I know Joyce will talk about this much more later, uh, everybody's happy, gen- satisfied with the federal response. Um, and I think one aspect I would like to, um, point out here on the the very bottom right, is not very, not very concerned about, you know, economic situation on top here. I'm I'm fairly concerned, but I'm not so concerned actually about losing my job, which kind of fits to this short worker allowance scheme, which so many people are under right now. Um, and, um, and then again, that will probably, it's from April, uh, May 7th might change depending how much longer we can keep this going or not. Okay. Let's look at the United States. So, um, also, not, let's look at the left here first before we go to the right. Um, so overall, um, and if we would look at the graph of trust in government over the years that go, went down in the United States, but in this particular case, do you trust the information you hear, And information is pretty much the only thing we can have the closest now to telling us really um, the overall trust and the response. On the federal level, not so much, at least when you're a Democrat. When you're a Republican, you're pretty happy. Um, independent, also not so much overly federal level if you want to keep if you want to equate President Trump with the federal level at all, um, um, overall maybe not so happy but again highly highly partisan um, news media is kind of split, but generally also like maybe not so much trust when we look at the state and, uh, and local level though and public health experts it doesn 't matter which party you're voting for it doesn 't matter. Um, um, yeah you you are you're trusting your local and state government, and that must also maybe and we can talk about this later, probably just the the, the nature of the issue you know health problem um, is mainly for mainly managed on the local level. that's where you can see the impact of the management that's where you can see where management is needed um, can very well um, you know can just be the nature of the problem. Or just simply that we feel like our, our state officials did a great job. And even in a conservative state like Montana, I would, I would agree with that assessment. Um, but then if we look at actually kind of trying to break it down a little more in terms of um, who is actually suffering the most psychologically or is under psychological um, distress. Um, and we can talk about, you can look at this later a little more. But it's mainly women. It's maybe young adults is when you're a democrat <laughs> uh and when you are lower income that, that these are really those parts of the of society um and then you know and then you know hispanic um as well um and and black that really have uh, a high psychological amount of distress the problem i have with this and and Pew research. Points that out, but uh, just to make clear for everybody here again, it's very hard to distinguish between your situation before the pandemic hit and when the pandemic hit. So it, we will know in longer term when we do this again to actually if we can actually kind of take them apart. But if you have these um, opinion poll surveys, it's really difficult to make a difference. So, um, but it tells us a little bit about you know um, who is worried here um, and not to get you know. Um, Th- those that that lose their job that don't have health insurance that don't have enough savings anyway before after and will maybe not have um and then uh, you know if we look at them they kind of go a little bit more into childcare situations that's a big worry especially for women um in this country and um so you have you have you have pockets of society that are very worried and then others like the over 65 here they're not worried at all um, so um, that's that's um, an interesting kind of side note. Okay, I promise I'm done. I'm gonna just conclude here real quick. Um, so when we look at the liberal welfare regime, um, I can just summarize um, and think about There's more fiscal stimulus during this pandemic into welfare system, less investment, there's just simply less money for it. Maybe the next CARES uh, Act um, will, and I heard about it in the negotiation, might include that. Um, There's less control of virus spread, although again, to which extent you can actually make a, you know, say, oh, that's because of the welfare regime is very limited. Uh, But it's a more severe economic impact. Uh, GDP is lower, um, unemployment is lower. And again, we would have to look at more liberal welfare regimes to really make that case across the board, but at least for the one we looked at, that's true. Citizens are less satisfied with federal government response. But again, that is true for this particular pandemic, but we can also see a general trend in the United States for having less trust in government. Um, And there's higher psychological stress among women, young adults, Democrats, and lower income. Um, and then, um, obviously, a bigger um, differentiation between um, racial identity as well. When we look at social and conservative welfare regimes during this pandemic, um, there's less fiscal stimulus into the social system um, because, it, for now, because it's not needed as much. Sorry. Um, and um, but there's more into the economies and future investment, green jobs, retraining, etc. It seems like the control of the virus um, spread is higher um, or more effective, and the economic impact is dampened for now. We have to see how that develops in the long run. Same is true for spending on social systems. The longer you will need it, the larger amount of people will need it, the more you have to spend into, of course. Uh, citizens seem to be coping much better with the pandemic overall. I think that's pretty clear to say. Um, you know, if you compare somebody staying at home in Sweden um, with full pay, or even Germany, doing Germany is probably a better comparison here with a full lockdown. Relatively, you know, could go more than one hour outside. Not as bad as in Italy or Spain. Um, then with the United States, you didn't have to worry about losing your job um, during that time, um, and you had generally less financial and psychological stress. Um, interesting to see how that developed. How is that now with schools opening or not opening? I mean, that always depends a little bit, but at least for the time we have the data on for now. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Again, I apologize. 15 minutes over what I wanted to talk. It happens to me when I'm excited about something. Um, I hope this was informative and you enjoyed my talk um, and hopefully has some food for thought that we can talk a little bit in the discussion. Thank you. (laughs)